Hello and welcome to episode seven of Crime Scene to Screen. Um, I can't actually quite believe that it is episode seven. The uh, I actually broke off just before this, but in shock basically. But um, yep, episode seven of um, Crime Scene to Screen with myself, uh, Treasury, and we have uh, Joe McElroy with us as well. Hello, everyone. How are you? And um, we also have a special guest because like pre- the previous episode, we had Colette Fahey on. Um, we just kind of thought that maybe you'd be a bit sick of just hearing me and Joe. So we have the wonderful Victoria Brown with us here. Hi, everyone. Um, and it is Victoria who actually chose our topic that we are covering today. Um, you'll obviously, if you've clicked on the episode, then you'll know um, that we're covering Peter Curtin, The Vampire of Dusseldorf, um, which inspired Fritz Lang's 1931 film, M. Um, so, yeah, Victoria, you, you, you didn't pick a, quite a joyous topic for us today. No, it's a, it's not a light film or a light topic at all. <laughs> no, um, me me and Joe have like a full list of, um, you know, before we started the pod of, of different topics that we want us to look into and um, with what, the, the name of yourself, <laughs> look at the board, yep. Um, for those who, who are maybe listening, Joe's just showing us our, our board. It, it would remind you of, um, you know, that meme from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and there's all the red string, different stuff like that. Um, that's very much like our board but um yeah we kind of gave Victoria the free reign to to pick what she wanted to cover and yeah she she brought um brought this delight to us today Joe what do you think yeah well it's nice to know um where Victoria stands and things now um child murder is clearly uh you know big in her mind you know like you go through all the <laughs> list of the various killers and the you know the sort of varying range in terms of depravity and you know grotesqueness and disgustingness and uh victoria well you picked a real doozy so thank you it was just lovely reading about young peter and his perversions but uh no no in all seriousness no i'm really glad you did pick him because it's one of those films i really really want to see even though the true to life subject matter is really icky uh but no it's also very important so i actually and it is actually really interesting to see how like post-world war germany and pre-world war ii germany how all these serial killers functioned in and around then and he was one of the most prominent ones so actually i'm really glad you picked this one because it's very very interesting topic so thank you you're very welcome <laughs> i think you might change your mind by the end of the pod maybe this is common as well from um as jim would say our resident disney queen so um i don't really <laughs> know how uh how how she goes from uh, you know, dreaming about Rapunzel to say, be- bestiality. Well, hang on, to be fair, Disney's based in grim fairy tales, so she was leaning on the dark side of things, yeah. I think. We, yeah. we, know, we know deep down um, Victoria wanted to join me and my um, sweet sister, Jo, uh, for this episode. Um, and why, before we get started... Um, I feel very honoured in a way to say this because some of my bigger um, podcasts that I listen to or people that I watch, like Bailey Sarian, um, this will be our first episode that we have a listener discretion. Ding, 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 ding. Beep, beep. Actually, like, <laughs> doing like a beep. Um, because this, yeah, the, 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 the topic that we're going to discuss is, is pretty 
pretty disgusting. Um, so listener discretion on this episode. Um, if I suppose it involves um, uh, the murder of children, rape, um, sexual assault, bestiality, um, cannibalism, and terrible pronunciations of names. So it's if you box. are offended of any of that, um, it's probably probably it's probably better just to turn off. Um, and yeah, if if you have no problem with that, then continue. Um, or even so, just skip to the film discussion. The film discussion yeah, will be more like yeah, that. yeah. I mean, I would say jump ahead about about half an hour, about thirty minutes, um, and we can talk about. If you're a big, you know, all, all you Fritz Lang fans out there, repping Fritz him boys. from the thirties, the Fritz, the Fritzy boys, um, yeah, just just skip on. But um, I suppose the, the only way to get to the film is if we get started with the story. Um, so I suppose without further ado. Let's get into um, Peter Curtin, the vampire of Dusseldorf. And again, I will really apologize for the mispronunciation of everything that I will now say. Um, I had to end up doing this, the whole syllable sounding out things, the same as I did with the episode of Heavenly, Heavenly Creatures. So hopefully I get it right. Um, but here we go. So Peter Curtin was born on the 26th of May, 1883 in Mülheim in Cologne and he was the eldest of 13 kids 13 children his mom and dad had just let that sink in um but yeah so he was the eldest of 13 um two of whom died at a very early age it's not really sure what um his uh, siblings died of but um I know it had a, a, a quite a big effect on Peter and on his family as well um so while being one of 13, he was also born into extreme um, poverty and an extremely abusive home. Um, both of his parents were alcoholics um, and they all shared a small one bedroom apartment in the city. So you can only imagine 13 people crammed into one room and you know your parents not being great. You're really not setting yourself up for a great life, um, which is what you tend to say with you know, the likes of a lot of, um, majority of the time with serial killers or, or those that commit um, crime. But as you all know, it doesn't always happen. Um, but Curtin's father um, was, was the main abuser and he regularly beat his wife and his children while drunk. Um, and there was also a lot of um, mental torture as well. Um, he used to force the, the children to basically watch him and his wife have intercourse every night. Um, and if they didn't watch it, they were basically beat up themselves. So it was a really torturous, vicious, vicious circle, sorry, that, that Peter grew up in. Um, so his father then was arrested and jailed in 1897 um, after he was caught um, having repeatedly raped Curtin's sister, who was only 13 years old. Um, shortly after his arrest, Mrs. Curtin and the remaining children issued a separation notice, so effecti um, effectively divorced him. Um, Remarried a man called, um, with a surname Curtin, and that's where Peter Curtin comes from, um, and they relocated to Dusseldorf with her new husband. Um, so with that, Joe, do you want to crack on? Uh, yeah, just a sort of few things, even when Peter was younger himself, you know, prior to his father's arrest and that. Um, 
you know, in 1888, he attempted to drown a playmate at the, and uh, I think it was four years later, uh, there was another influential figure that came into his life. There was um, a local dog catcher he became friends with. And um, yeah, this is one of the things that, you know, we sort of had the warning for beforehand because he, alongside him, uh, Curtin would actively partake in torturing and killing animals. And it sort of opened the door to bestiality them as well. And it was a very, very gruesome thing. So he was very much exposed to this um, sort of depraved way of being at a very, very young age. Um, and then it was around the time he was nine years old, uh, which was shortly, yeah, it would have been about a year or so after he became friends with this dog catcher that he claimed to have committed his first murder. He um, was unlike this little raft with some schoolmates and he pushed one of them off of it. And a second boy had jumped in to rescue him, but apparently Curtin had held the other boy down and both of the boys drowned. But um, it was ruled as an accident by authorities because they couldn't actually prove that Peter had held yeah. down the one child while the other child struggled and drowned. So there you go. At a very early age, this sort of idea of um, who Peter was to become, it was instilled in him. And that was sort of you know off the bat of his poor uh, upbringing. Uh, which um, Trez had mentioned previously. Um, so then even into his teens, he had developed, you know, he further developed into a sexual deviant and a criminal. He didn't, uh, he'd still engage in torturing animals and he viewed it as an act of pleasure. Like, as we will come to find out later on, these sort of acts sort of gave him a certain sexual gratification in a way. And, uh, uh, that's about as detailed as I'm going to get into it. If you do want to know more, there's plenty of stuff to read on it, but that's as much as you probably need to know just to understand the um, Peter himself. Um, so yeah, it wasn't too long after his um, father's arrest that he'd left school and obtained employment as an apprentice molder, uh, but that lasted only two years. Uh, after this time, he uh, after this, he stole all the money from his household and the household of his employer and fled to Koblenz and he was arrested there four weeks later but he only served a one month sentence and upon his release he resorted still to life of petty crime so you know the good old uh, criminal justice system did nothing for Peter it just kept him on the same path he was going down no um, rehabilitation whatsoever no no should we all know even to this day jails don't really work no no but we're not getting that. that's a discussion for another day um, so I suppose I'll get into his first murder and then I'll sort of let you take away from after that, Trey, is that right? Yeah, no, crack on. Yeah. So on the 25th of May, 1913, uh, Curtin is said to have committed his first mur murder. So at this time, like, like I said, he was committing acts of petty crime. And this was sort of, um, the, you know, this actual murder was something which he, uh, he took advantage of a situation to do it basically. So his victim was nine-year-old Christine Klein. Uh, he was carrying out a burglary in a tavern in Mulheim on the Ren, and he had come across Klein who's asleep in her bed. He had strangled her before slashing her throat twice and he and this is going back to the animal thing. He claimed that the sound of the blood hitting the floor had caused him to ejaculate. 
and the next day he went into the tavern across the road from the scene of the crime where he would observe the reaction of the locals with a great sense of gratification. But soon after this, he would find himself in jail again because of burglary and arson. And this is something that's sort of indicative to Curtin and his crimes. He loved the reaction as much as the actual action itself. He would always sort of um, step away from the crimes afterwards and he would observe the reaction locals. He loved to see their panic. He loved to see the fear. It's just part of who he was and his sort of reaction to these things. And um, yeah, that's pretty much, you know, the first murder that he committed. And after that, it was all downhill from there as if it hadn't been going downhill. But, you know, it was getting worse and worse and worse. So uh, if you want to take it away from there, Trace. Um, before I uh, head on, Victoria, are you still with us? Do you want to log off yet? <laughs> are you disturbed? Uh, very, Perturbed. very, very disturbed. It's it's one of those things like for your first murder to be a little girl, like everything I've read about Curtin, he said they all said that he he would pick people that would be missed. So in tree crime, mm-hmm. there's kind of a thing about the less dead, so that tends to be people from the black community, people from LGBTQ plus communities, prostitutes a lot of the time, but Curtin specifically chose people that would be missed because like Joe said, he loved seeing people freak out. He loved seeing people panic and that was just, yeah. Yeah. So do you want to put your laptop in the freezer and we'll call it quits? (laughs) Not quite yet. No, not yet. Okay. Right. Go on ahead, Tris. Okay. I think we'll, we'll, we'll do another couple. Um, Why, just with, um, going back to your point about, um, I suppose, you know, being part of the investigation, that is one of the things that, um, you know, at the time the the term serial killer wasn't used um, because a lot of people, you know, in the early days just couldn't fathom that one person could basically give so much destruction. but you do find it in, you know, studies later on that those real um, narcissistic sadists are the ones who get themselves involved in the crimes. Like John Wayne Gacy befriended the police. Um, you know, Ted Bundy did the same. Um, it's like a known trait for those for those type of people with the mentality that um, everything's about them. I mean, even BTK, like. He, he came up with his own name and sent it to the, the, you know, the newspaper so people thought he would be famous. So I imagine it would be on you know, that same type of light. And with Christine's murder, um, because, because Peter was arrested for another crime at the time, um, it was actually her uncle who was falsely arrested for a murder, um, which Curtin, I suppose, um, didn't like because he wasn't the one who was getting the attention for basically um which led him as well to suppose follow her trial quite close um but you know ultimately this one murder wasn't enough for him as we will go on to say and I think mainly it will come down to the fact that he wasn't the center of attention and he wasn't the person who who ultimately was arrested for it um yeah. but there you you say there is a sort of pattern with um the individuals that Curtin chooses initially and then he gets very sporadic and 
quite frenzied and I think it mainly comes down to suppose, the sexual gratification that he got from it all um, but let's go on to the next couple of gruesome, gruesome murders um, so upon his release um, it was around um, the time of World War I so Curtin was called up for military service um, but as I'm sure you can imagine, the disciplined life um, of, of the military just didn't serve him. Um, and he deserted from the barracks. He was then jailed um, and captured and remained in prison until 1921, which was his longest sentence to date. Um, and it's incredible to think that the, 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 the longer jail sentence that he had was basically running away from war but for his actual murders, he, he, he didn't, up to this point, he hadn't really served any, any amount of decent time, same as the petty crimes. Um, but while he was in prison, basically his internal rage sort of intensified, um, turning him into a real monster, um, which happens as soon as he's released from prison. Um, so he moves to Altenburg, um, where he met and married a former sex worker who had been jailed for the murder of her fiancé. So effectively, two murderers coming together. What? What? What's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah. Fun um, fact about her: she was a sweet shop owner as well. Oh, mm. oh, that's kind of creepy. Sex and yeah. sweet shop. Exactly. That is kind of, that, that is kind of creepy when you think about what he what he did too. But yeah, um. <laughs> Just, just sorry to throw you off, but that does that not put the uh, you know the image of the kid ch- kid snatcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in your head? Oh God! No, are pops children? What are are you trying to say that the child catcher was a former sex worker? <laughs> no, I'm just saying that maybe he was modelled off Peter Curtin. Who knows? Oh, okay, okay, that, that that could be true. Yeah, he could I mean, be that too. There's lots of theories out there, Trez. Um, Peter Curtin had quite a hook nose from Peter from pictures I'd seen, so you never know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it it appeared that whenever he had met um this woman, that his life was sort of on a decent track. Um, and he spent the next four years after having a fairly normal life. He actually got a job as a molder, um, which he had been an apprenticeship an apprentice for before. Um, and he also got involved in the trade union. So at this point. I mean, I hate to say it, but it sounded like everything was coming up Peter Curtin. Um, but I suppose it was short-lived because he he needed his lust essentially fulfilled. Um, and he found himself constantly being drawn back to Dusseldorf. Um, and it was about Dusseldorf, I suppose, with the history of his parents and of the abuse. Um, he tied a lot of the crimes to Dusseldorf probably because you know a lot of the bad things he'd done he got such gratification and a thrill out of it that was moving anywhere else just really didn't suit him um so he he ticked off a few more um crimes on his list um petty crimes arson attacks um sexual assaults and four of those um are currently um he was basically there was four of those sort of attacks that can be pinpointed on Peter um but he basically it got to a point where it just wasn't enough um and he 
Um, do you know what? I'm getting all confused because I've written. Joe, do you know what? Yeah. I've just realised that the re- the reason my notes were like halfway was because I copied and pasted them from this into a different sheet. So it basically repeats the paragraph twice. So that's Lovely. why I'm getting really threw up. Sorry. Um, it's fine. Sorry, listeners. You're all right. Sorry, listeners. All it's all about, part of the fun. It's all, part all of the about <laughs> seeing all, all the behind the scenes. scenes. Yeah, all, behind the scenes of the crime scenes, the screens. Yeah, our our three um, loyal fo- listeners, which is probably me and Joe a couple of times, and then somebody random. Um, yeah, apologies. Um, love you, random. Love you. Anyway, um, so then we'll move on to um, Fuzz's next sort of documented murder, which again is just awful. It was a young a young nine year old girl. Um. And this was in 1929. Um, and this sort of was the real escalation um, of, I suppose, of his rage. He stabbed um, the young girl 19, uh, sorry, he stabbed her 13 times. Um, and during the attack, I suppose, he basically climaxed um, when he had seen the blood, which is something that, again, as time goes on, um, he really gets a thrill out of, of seeing blood and suppose blood pouring out of, of the victims. Um, so he basically took her, took Rose's um, remains, tried to dump it under a hedge um, and realised that it was, it was supposed to two out of, it was too um, out in the open. So he tried to burn her body, um, but basically not all of her body burnt. So when, when she was found, God love her, um she basically was in a really really body damaged way um and they kind they found it hard initially to identify who the young guard was um but eventually they found out that it was um nine-year-old rosa oliger um so rosa was the first of a number of victims um that then continued and escalated from young girls young women and even to men all over the next 15 months um so if you want to crack on, Joe. Yeah, uh, just like you said, it was it was literally only four days after the murder of Rosa. He'd uh, killed a 45-year-old man called uh, Rudolf Scheer uh, in a stabbing frenzy. Like the, the weapon he used, it wasn't a knife. It was a sharpened pair of scissors that he used. Um, I think it was just uh, you know setting off from that initial uh, murder of Rosa. He was just lost complete control. Um and it was after Rudolph's killing, you know, a bit like before with uh, the initial murder of Christine, uh, he returned to the scene of the crime to talk to the police, claiming about that he'd heard about the murder over the telephone, uh, again, to dispel suspicion, like Gacy, like you just mentioned, Trez, there uh, a few minutes ago. Um, and then over the next six months, he attempted to murder four different women by strangling them, but he failed, thankfully. Um, and then on August uh, the 11th 1929 he met up with uh, a young single woman called Maria Han um, who he had initially met three days earlier in Dusseldorf's uh, Neanderthal district sorry there's a German just rolling off my tongue never mind uh, and after spending a few hours together he lured her into a meadow where he had stabbed and strangled her to death he buried her in a cornfield, which would he would often return to it, a bit like Bundy in that way. That's you know he would kill his victims yeah. and often go back to the scenes of the crime and revisit it. Um, 
and on one occasion he had dug up her body with the intention of staging a mock crucifixion, but he had failed in his attempt. Again, just showing how sick and depraved he actually was. Uh, and then later in the month, uh, I believe it was 10 days later, on the 21st, he carried out a spate of violent crimes. He randomly stabbed an 18-year-old girl, a 30-year-old man, 37-year-old woman in separate attacks, seriously injuring them. And the incidents put uh, the police at Dusseldorf on high alert. It was then they realised, okay, these murders before, they're not just random acts. These are all connected now. And, excuse me, it was through these attacks, you were like, okay, this is, you know, as serious as things are were before, they're much more serious now. Um, and uh, however, despite their efforts, Kurt had managed uh, to murder foster sisters Louise Lenzen, who was fourteen, and Gutrid Hamacher, who was five, in an allotment bean patch. Uh, again, you know his sort of method of murder was strangulation followed by stabbing. Um, but yeah, just the th- uh, going back on the idea of there, there being no sort of serial killers or the idea of a serial killer was sort of completely foreign to them, to, to the people of Germany at the time. That's why the police were sort of panicking and they couldn't put a pin on this guy because they were like, oh, what the hell's happening? Why are all these people being murdered randomly? But the thing is, Curtin wasn't even the only person, you know, who was engaging in multiple murders around this time. It was a weird sort of place, Germany at the time, because out of World War II, it's sort of, I think it was maybe due to uh, social deprivation and that because, you know, there were high rates of inflation. There was lots of poverty in that. So crime and uh, opportunism within that sort of was on the rise. Um, and then it actually led to the main investigator of this crime, Ernest G- uh, Gannett, coining the term Syrian murder uh, in order to describe it. So... That, that's I mean this is something that's brand new to law enforcement at the time so they're like we've no idea what the hell's going on there's this madman who's randomly like stabbing and strangling uh, young women and uh, men and there's no real sort of motive to it at all um but yeah uh I'll let you maybe continue there uh Therese if uh you know where to sort of pick up from where I left off uh, I'd just gone over them to uh, young ladies who were unfortunately killed by Peter on in August 1929. Yeah, so with my notes, um, I I sort of listed them, listed these out in respect, I suppose, for the victims, mm. um, but also because there was just so, there was so much in such a short time that he actually did. Um, so after the two foster sisters, um, he then jumped to a 40 year old woman so this is when I suppose everything more or less got quite frenzied and he just he wasn't particular in who he attacked as Victoria said it was mainly people that were missed and that would have had a real um a real occasion I suppose about their murder and about their death so he could just put himself into the investigation and ultimately suppose in his in his small-minded state make it about him um but yeah, the next few, um, there was 40-year-old Gertrude Schultz, um, who actually survived her attack. Um, and she was able to give a description of Curtin to the police. Um, but unfortunately, at the time, there wasn't really any sort of distinguishing features between him and many other of, of the men in Germany. Um, so it was good that they had the description of him. 
um, but they, they found it quite hard to whittle it down to who it actually was. He didn't really have very much distinguishing features. Um, he then raped and murdered Ida Reuter. Um, after that, it was Elizabeth Dorier who he battered to death, um, which again was slightly um, out of his normal um, motive. As Joe said, he was fond of um, strangulation and stabbing. Um, but this was a real sort of um, angry attack, as you would normally find um, most most people who are murdered by suppose, being bludgeoned or, or battered to death. It comes with a lot of strength and um, adrenaline. So this this was a really angry murder. Um, and then he returned to um, a young girl who was only five. Um, her name was Gertrude Alberman. Um, she was stabbed multiple times and was left in a rubble pile, um, apparently quite out in the open. Um, and it was it was in the daylight as well. So she, he basically effectively left her body quite exposed. Um, and it was said that he more or less watched people find the body and sort of got gratification from that. Um, you know, the thought of him being so close to the murder and, and being the murderer but not being caught was, was sort of thrilling for him. Um, so at the time, uh, the press coverage was quite sensational about the attacks. Um, you know, you would imagine it would be much like your son or your daily star of the day with terrible headlines. Um, but they coined the term um, the vampire of Dusseldorf um, because investigators had had basically seen that um, it looked like Peter had been drinking the blood of his victims, basically, just the way certain um, certain aspects of the crime scene were left. Um, so this sort of um, print was immortalised everywhere, um, and and this is the name he was given, probably much to his enjoyment um, that he was now given a serial killer name. Um, but it was, you know, I, I, he was being featured in the press. He had his sort of serial killer name. Um, and it was probably at that time, again, as I said, quite thrilling to him. So you could only imagine how much he enjoyed it. Um, but strangely enough, so throughout all of his reign of terror, he still maintained his marriage to his wife. Um, and they still had a, a quite a quite an attachment together. Um, and up to this point, she effectively knew nothing of what he had done. Um, but he, not too long, basically, after some of the murders, he had um, raped a girl called Bidlick, um, but she had managed to escape um, and was one of the people who was able to give a description. Um, but at this point, Peter was getting quite sloppy um, and frenzied. So he, he was worried that he would be caught, eventually caught for the rape. He wasn't so concerned about all the murders that he had basically committed. It was just this rape. Um, so essentially, for the fondness of his wife, he came up with a plan um, to make sure that she was going to be sorted financially after he was arrested, um, which is just awful. It's awful good of him as a husband. Um, so he basically confessed to her that he was the Dusseldorf vampire. Um, he detailed all of the killings and all of the attacks. Um, and he insisted that if she was to turn him in, um, she'd be paid a large reward. 
um because at the time there was an, a, a warrant out for his arrest um and with the warrant came monetary value um so initially she was quite reluctant um and and I suppose didn't want it either husband effectively um but after some time um on the 24th of May 1930 um she did as her husband advised and she took to the police to the designated rendezvous site um which was a local church and that is where Curtin had been hiding um and he then surrendered himself to the police quietly without any sort of fuss um and yeah they were under the impression that because she had done this they would be rewarded with a large sum but of course that did not happen um so joe if you want to um go ahead with the arrest then and dispose the proceedings i uh, yeah the sort of arrest and his trial and that's pretty much it for peter then <laughs> but yeah uh like you said um i always have this weird feeling i don't think his wife thought he was as innocent as he was I think she suspected that he did something, but it was one of those things, don't ask, and, you know, nothing will happen to me. Because it was reported a number of times he would come home like, with blood all over him. And she, you know, would she not kind of go, uh, Peter, you're not a butcher, so um, what, what's with all the blood? But anyway, that's just sort of a theory I had. I don't know if it's ever been proven or anything like that. I just don't think it's sort of as clean cut as... You know, some accounts are sort and sort of going through because um, there were actual accounts of her knowing they had blood on them. So it's one of those things that sort of throws that thing up in the air. And maybe that's why eventually she received no compensation because they're kind of like, well, you're sort yeah. of complicit in some shape or form. Uh, but that's uh, that's the theory for another day. Uh, so yeah, uh, upon his arrest, like you said, on the twenty fourth of May. Um, Curtin had admitted to 68 crimes, which included nine murders and 31 attempted murders. Uh, he had told police how he had been sexually aroused by the sight of blood since childhood, and he even confessed to drinking some of the victim's blood. So he more or less confirmed what the police had sort of already suspected in him. Um, and then his trial had begun on the 13th of April, 1931. He, he had pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. So that started a very original trend, didn't it? As you can see through the history of true crimes, like, oh, I murdered all these people knowingly uh, because I was insane, which is a load of crap half the time. Um, not to put down people's mental health, obviously, but you know, when you look at some of these other cases and you go, you are in full awareness and control of what you're doing. So don't, don't try and use that uh, plea. But anyway, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity and to counteract Curtin's insanity defense, the prosecution had introduced five of the most eminent doctors and psychiatrists in Germany to testify at the trial. And each had testified that Curtin was legally sane and had been in perfectly control of his actions and impulses at all times. Uh, they stated his crimes were premeditated and acts of sadism to which he had full, uh, which he had control over to fulfill his perverted sexual desires. And on the 22nd of April, uh, 1931, Curtin was found guilty and sentenced to death on nine counts of murder and he was said to have been emotionless as the sentence was passed and uh, now we reach curtains for Curtin as on 6 o'clock of the morning uh, 6am sorry, on 2nd of July 1931, Peter Curtin was executed by Carl Kropra with a guillotine in the grounds of Klingklutz prison in Cologne 
and shortly before his head was placed on the guillotine, Curtin had asked the question, tell me, after my head is chopped off, will I still be able to hear, at least for a moment, the sound of my blood gushing from the stump to my neck? Uh, that would be the pleasure to end all pleasures. And when asked whether he had any words to say afterwards, Curtin simply smiled and replied no before the guillotine was dropped on him. Now, to this day, you can actually see Curtin's head. I found out just in researching afterwards, because shortly after um, his execution, um, his head was vivisected and his brain was studied just to sort of, you know, try and get an idea of, you know, why would somebody commit these uh, acts of crime and why would someone be so depraved? And I think it's on display in a writ. I think it's Ripley's, believe it or not, sort of museum. I think it's in Wisconsin. I forgot to write down where it was, but yes, you can see Peter Curtin's vivisected head. And even if you Google it, you can see it there. And uh, it's just as ugly in death as it was in life. So yeah, that's pretty much Peter Curtin, uh, the scumbag from Dusseldorf, as I call him, because he doesn't deserve his sensationalized press title. He's just, yeah. No, he does not. Yeah. But anyway, that's him. Curtains, curtains for Curtin, as you said. Uh-huh. Um, I I just want to um, basically reference the sources um, mm, just because um, I suppose as time goes on, um, me and Joe can't continue to uh, pretend that we have written this all ourselves because we <laughs> most definitely did not. Um, so my sources, I used uh, an article um, from biography.com that was written by their researching team. And that is just um, basically crime figure Peter Curtin. Um, I also used a Britannica article that was written by John Philip, Philip Jenkins um, and then also referenced a book which Joe had recommended to me um, written by Lee Meller and it is called Behind the Horror, True Stories That Inspired Horror Movies. Um, there's also no, numerous um, podcasts. Victoria mentioned last podcast on the left and um, Bailey Sarian covers it on her YouTube and um, I'm almost sure Morbid covered as well. Just if you want to hear um, any more great detail about this horrible man, um, you probably don't. But if you did, there, there is other platforms out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yes, I use the same sources, more or less, as yourself, Tres. Maybe just beefed it up a little bit in certain places uh, through different YouTube videos and out there, which I created a playlist for. So we're going to try and get that link uh, attached as well. Again, if you want more details, uh, there's a great video on it uh, from a guy who's a psychologist. He sort of covers some murders. I think he covered the crime when we did Heavenly Creatures. So, um, yes, I will try and get the link attached to either, you know, the video version is that comes out or the actual pod itself. So, um, do you want to move on into the film? But maybe before that, can we just ask Victoria, what do you think of the crime? What do you think of Petey? just noticed a weird detail at the time of recording it's the 30th of june 2021 and he was executed nearly 90 years ago to the date because it was the 2nd of july 1931 oh so we'll, we'll, we'll have to get jim to put the pot out that day oh god <laughs> or maybe not no no because it'll be a celebration him and he didn't no he would he would have loved that i know watching watch from Happy. the flames of hell going oh look Anniversary. at him enjoy the pot. Happy anniversary, Peter Curtin. Happy execution day, Peter. Happy, happy, happy death day, Peter. Happy Curtin. to know you're dead, Pete. Yep, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Aye, like out, out of all the serial killers that like that we've ever talked about personally, out of all the ones I've ever read about or listened to episodes or watched videos about, he's like he's in the top five. Like some of the stuff that he's that he did was just like you don't want to talk about it. Like no, it's enough no. just to say he did A, B, and C, but going into the details, he, he's an absolutely horrendous human being. And we went fairly soft. Like, if we wanted to go more detail, we could. Yeah. And there are more sources out there if you want to get into the real nitty gritty. But we tried to be as tame as possible, even though we do have like a little trigger warning at the start. It's only because, no, it just, it's not the kind of thing we want to talk about in a Wednesday evening. <laughs> and the, that book that you recommended, Joe, as well, um, yeah. it's really good. Um, it not only covers um, the story and Fritz Lang's M, but um, it also covers um, the murders of 10 Rillington Place with John Christie and the movies that inspired that, Ed Gein and the movies inspired that, um, Psycho, um, Leopold and Loeb, like mm. a, quite a lot of um, big hitters, as you would say. Um, and it's, it's written quite... Um, it's written quite smart um, and in a, a sort of plain and dumb down way not that the writing's dumb but it's very, you know, very it's, accessible it's yeah, very yeah. accessible for, for anyone um, both fan of say the films that he covers and, um, and and the murders as well so if anybody is interested in general in true crime movies um, upon Joe's recommendation it's, it's a really good it's a really good book um, but I suppose while we um, are talking about Fritz Lang's M, um, probably best that we move on to the film. Um, normally at this stage, we would, um, I suppose, cut in uh, a piece of audio from the movie. Um, if you haven't watched it, it it's basically in German. Um, so yeah, I think we'll leave that out for the minute. Yeah, but, it's been um, like Memories of Murder. We, we couldn't really do that either because it was yeah. Korean. So. Um, and I suppose it just, it wouldn't really transition well um, no. onto the pod. But uh, Victoria, I suppose, do you want to introduce the, the film as, at the, I suppose, ultimately it was your choice? Well, Fritz Lang's M, it was produced the same year Peter Curtin was killed, uh, 1931. It only took about, I think it was six weeks, took him to film, which in filmmaking terms is not a lot of time at all. Um, it follows a, I'm not sure if they list a specific time, but it's about a child murderer in an urban situation. And there's no one protagonist. A lot of it is very focused on the individuals in this city and how they come together as a mob to try and track down this killer because the police aren't, well, the people feel the police aren't doing enough and the criminal underworld of the city kind of steps in. Not because they actually care what the murderer is doing, but because he's an inconvenience to them which is an interesting take way to, way to look at it, yeah. Interesting but realistic. It's like, oh, it's affecting our money, all these like clubs being yep. raided because the police are doing searches for this high, but they can't find them. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It was a bit of a change for Fritz Lang because a lot of his work, he kind of started off in the early 1920s in Germany. And like Joe was saying, Germany at this time, there was a lot of money issues. Everyone kind of just felt defeated. There was a very existential, just toned the entire country. Crime was rampant. And a lot of the filmmaking of the 1920s reflects that. Um, in terms of budget, they didn't have a lot of money for sets. They would like paint cheap bits of cardboard, but, but they ended up kind of 
you could tell they were cardboard, but the directors didn't mind. So it gave their films this weird kind of gothic, fantastic kind of look to them. And Fritz Lang's probably best known for doing Metropolis, which is like a, a really epic three hour long sci-fi film. So this was quite a, a change for him. It has some of the elements of German expressionism. So it's very dark. It has a psychologically uh, like set story. But if anything, it's probably more of a precursor to film noir, which is very existential, very like cynical hero kind of thing. And like as far as my research can tell me, it was probably Fritz Lang's favorite film of his own because of the amount of social criticism in it. Like Fritz Lang was very, very against the Nazis as a lot of Germans actually were. I don't think people kind of acknowledge that. Like it's kind of like Trump, like Germany's political landscape is not a reflection of all the people. Mm -hmm. And as far as I'm aware, once M was finished, Joseph Goebbels actually offered, I say offered, kind of told Fritz Lang either be our propaganda filmmaker or leave. So Fritz Lang agreed and then fled to Paris that night. And I don't think he returned to Germany for a long time after that. Mm -hmm. No, uh, because he was Jewish himself as well. Mm -hmm. That was another thing. So all this anti-Semitic nonsense that they were spewing out constantly didn't help matters for him either. Um, and uh, yeah, it was the same actually for the star of the film, Peter Laurie. He actually fled Germany just before because he was Jewish as well. And he sort of seen the writing on the wall when the Nazis sort of took power and so, so on and so forth. And the rest is history, as we know, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, why, why M specifically? Did, why, why did you pick it, Victoria? You know, what drew you to it? Um, I was kind of fascinated because while it's not the first like quote-unquote serial killer movie like there are ones that predate it like Hitchcock's The Lodger which I think is about Jack the Ripper it's from what I've seen because it was based on Peter Curtin although Fritz Lang disputed that because like you guys said there was a couple of other serial killers at the same time so I think they all kind of influenced it but I wanted to see how some one with Lang's very specific style would deal with something so dark and I was actually surprised that he really humanizes Peter Laurie's character. Peter Laurie plays the serial killer Hans Beckert and I was expecting a very stupidly comment black like black and white portrayal of him but he, he really gives him depth and you were saying Joe about the insanity play this guy from the sounds of it actually was sick Mm -hmm. But the crowd were like, no, he's a murderer, he's a murderer. And in one sense, you can understand why they would feel like that, because he specifically targeted children, like little girls. Mm -hmm. So you can understand why people would put their emotions above their logic. But unlike Peter Curtin, who was not, he wasn't, he was sick, but not mentally ill. Hans Beckert was ill. Yeah. Which I thought yeah. was... Fascinating. You could tell even from like the very first scene where introduced him, he's staring in the mirror and he's sort of making distorted looks on the face. It kind of reminded me of Joker in the way. Uh -huh. Yes. You know, yeah, Phoenix. You're like, oh, so that's where sort of he got that from. And mm -hmm. that's sort of just like a wider thing that just actually amazed me about it is the fact that it seems so modern, even though it was made in 1931. I was like, this, like, like, because, you know, for example, like we watched Zodiac uh, for our Zodiac episodes, Trace. You could, it literally felt like I was watching a film made in similar time like you do know it has aged in certain technical uh instances 
but in general the way the story flows and the way it unfolds and is told it, it, it feels so fresh and you can see where so many different filmmakers are chucking ideas from the film itself and it's just it, I was I was blown away by it to be honest with you but uh what, what did you think of it Trails? Yeah no I'm completely on, on the same the same point as as the two of you um you know I haven't studied film it was one of those um things I suppose that were, were on my lists for reference specifically whenever we were um looking into the German expressionism and um and early film noir as well um you know as Victoria said he's mainly known for um Metropolis which is is such a hulk of a movie as well um but I I knew that it would be a good movie, but I, I I think I was just even more blown away by um just how easy it was to follow. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have issues with um foreign cinema. I absolutely love it. There's some great movies out there. Um, but I know there there's a lot of people who would sort of first of all not want to watch this because it was it was shot and released in the 30s. Um, and second of all, because it is in it's in German, so it's in a foreign language, and um, you know you need to follow it by subtitles. But it just it you know I suppose back in those early days, subtitles aren't what they are now. Um, but it doesn't take away from the movie at all. It's so easy to follow. You know the different scenes. Like when you th- when you think about this movie, um cinema was still really in its early stages they hadn't moved the move to talkies was still quite recent at the time as well um and you think about some of the shots like in the movie you know specifically um the scene where the gang overtake the the sort of underground bank where it is on the train station Mm. um and the amount of people within those shots that you can very clearly see everything they do. It's so crisp, you know, when they're breaking into different parts, when they're drilling holes in doors, you know, there's ones going down to the basement. Like, it's just, it's so clear, concise. You can see what everybody's doing. Um, And so much of it, I suppose, at the time, still was quite through the expression. Um, There was only so much that people, I suppose, could say on camera. you know, there was a real thing that it was only the main actors that were ever allowed to speak. Actors couldn't really speak, but it's how they behaved sort of outside of the story that really added to the story as well. Um, and I suppose you can say that Hitchcock did take, I would say, he, he used, I suppose, um, some of the references within um, Fritz Lang's work in his later work. Um, you can see the, the sort of style in Frenzy, um, which is, is, I think it's one of his last movies. Um, but how, I suppose, someone's eyes can tell such a story. Peter Laurie's eyes in this are absolutely mental. Um, mm-hmm. there's, you know, if you haven't seen the, the movie, you'll have seen the picture of him looking over his shoulder with just the brightest, widest eyes. Um which which tells so much um and it happens in, in frenzy as well and i suppose it, it has been used in other movies um but i suppose what one of the the 
the main points that I enjoyed of this and I suppose makes it quite creepy is um the soundtrack and, and music and yeah. um, music plays quite a, a big role particularly in um Peter Laurie's character Hans Becker he um whistles the um in the hall of the mountain king motif so like me saying it you're not going to know what it is oh, but if you were to the Alton Towers music that's how you know <laughs> yeah so he ba- he basically whistles the Alton Towers music which you know to us as you said Joe Alton Towers is an exciting play you know it, it's it's something that I associate Fun with place a, for the family with, <laughs> yeah I associate it with a good thing and then when I heard this in the mil- the film, I was like, going forward, that's all I want to think about is Peter Laurie basically going to, this was the song that he whistled as he was approaching a child and is ultimately one of the things that get him captured at the end. Um, but just that use of that one strong whistle the whole way through can can say a lot. Um says a lot about Peter Laurie, says a lot about his actions and I suppose if we're taking it back to Peter Curtin it was maybe one of the ticks that he sort of brought on when he was ready to kill somebody um, you know with, with his fa- Peter Curtin's fascina- fascination of blood and I suppose um, the sexual gratification I suppose of seeing people in um, compromising situations this, in a sense, it was Peter Laurie's way of knowing, right, you know, I'm in this mind frame. I'm ready to do something bad, basically. And um, it always is. As soon as he whistles that song, um, he, he basically murders a child. So I will forever now, going forward, not think of that as the Alton Towers song and think of it as a death whistle. Yeah. You know what actually reminds me of that? They actually use that music. And a guy pointed out one of the YouTube videos I was looking at, it sort of is a in, in the way that he uses that whistle. It's a bit like you know the Jaws theme for the shark. Mm. You know that this predator is coming for it, mm-hmm. and he's about yeah. to do something horrendous to the uh, poor unsuspecting victim. And for me, like the actual opening, the phone's near perfect. Um, it's like it begins with the children playing in the street, and they're doing like uh, you know they're playing a game, talking about this killer who's already yeah. killed a few children. And there's a mother upstairs in the room. She's waiting for a child to come home from school. She sets the table. The clock rings. Uh, sorry, the cuckoo clock rings uh, to indicate the child's on her way home. So you see the child. She's walking down the street and she bumps into uh, Beckert, who offers her a balloon and sweets. And the mother's sitting there. She's sitting. She's waiting. She's worried. Other children come home. And she's like, oh, where's my child? Where's my child? And then... All the while the child had this ball, it's like a sort of a symbol of innocence anyway, it's playing with it. And, you know, that's how Beckard introduced himself. It's like, oh, that's a nice wee ball you have. And then the whole scene ends with, you know, what's happened without any sort of graphic image or yeah. anything that, or even, a, you know, a scream, nothing. It's just a simple image of the ball rolling away and the balloon uh, caught in power lines. And that's yeah. it. I thought that was just fantastic. It tells you everything you need to know gives you genuine chills over knowing what the hell's happened and and it just sets up the whole film perfectly and then sort of alluding to what you were saying victoria i love the dynamics between not only the police but the criminal crime syndicates and how they sort of bumped off of each other and um it does mention as well like uh 
when he when uh, Beckard is eventually caught and he's in front of like the kangaroo court with the crime syndicate, he is asked, you know, why are you doing this? And he's like, I'm compelled to do it. You know, mm-hmm. in a way like that Curtin was compelled to it, but only he was done compelled through, you know, his own sexual perversions rather than maybe just something darker or more sinister within him that isn't really mentioned at all by Beckard. But uh uh no as a whole it was just an incredible film. But uh like what what do you what do you think of it now victoria sort of after having gone through the curtain case in general um i think the film is very powerful like you said the opening scene you don't need to see the gore to know mm-hmm. what's happened and even when you first meet becker like you don't actually see peter laurie's face until about 40 45 minutes into the film you see Elsie, his first, well, not first victim, the first victim we know about, and you just see his shadow and then you hear that whistle. So from then on, you associate the shadow and the whistle with something bad's going to happen. And like that, that's so timeless. Like that would work in a modern film now. Like it's not something that's very like set yeah, in the 30s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was actually surprised by that as well, Joe. It's, it does have such a modern kind of sensibility to it, which I wasn't expecting. Yeah, that's what I mean. It just seems like there's a lot of borrowing. You see, that's what I mean. Like, it was like you think about watching that in 1930, you know, 1940s, like it would just literally blow you away. But now, when watching, you're like, oh, that's, I can see where that's from that. And that's from that. That's from that. That's from that. Uh, you know, I, I pointed out Zodiac because we'd only watched it fairly recently. I was like, there's a lot in Zodiac that's listening you know, the whole procedural element of yeah. Zodiac. That's clear here. And like how the police went about trying to catch the guy, and you know, uh, they would raid places. And then, like, if somebody had their ID papers, they could go because they could mark them and identify them in a certain place, certain time. And who had the problems, newspaper got involved. Jail. Yeah, the newspaper, the press. It's just all these little elements that they aren't really distractions or they're not boring. They're all essential to the story as well, which is why it all just ties perfectly together. And uh, it's probably the best film we've covered so far, I think. Yeah, and no, I, I not, not that I know <laughs> no. you're a huge Scream fan, Trace, but I'm sorry, I, for me, M's the big winner so far. Well, I mean, I, I absolutely love Scream and could watch it content, like over time and time and time again, no problem watching it. Yeah. What, what I think the respect I give to this film as as I've said, I suppose, as like a, a, a previous um, film student, as someone who loves film, is I was just so impressed. I was, I was so impressed. I, I wasn't going to go into it and say that I, that I wasn't going to be impressed or that I was going to be a disinter- disinterested or anything. Because um, there would have been a point in time that I probably, I wouldn't have had time for foreign language movies or anything, I suppose, that you kind of had to think about. But even with this movie, there's really not much thinking in it either. Like the the story is laid out for you so well that it's just as I said before, it's accessible to anybody. Um, and I think that both the story of Peter Curtin and um, I suppose in a very uh, loose term, the film adaptation, you know, and and the reference of his life, this probably is one of the the the, the best that we've covered so far. Um. And I know we've got wide lists to go, but um, yeah, no, I am really glad that you chose this, Victoria. It, it, um, it, it blew me away. And um, 
it'd be a film that I'll definitely be recommending to people as well. Well, I'll be telling everybody about this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that struck me the most was how innovative the camera work is. Like, like you were saying, Trez film was still relatively new, like sound talkies were only four years old at this point. But in silent film, there wouldn't have been like close-ups or mid-shots. It would have just been one big wide shot. The camera was very stationary. Cameras could move, but they were very heavy. It was a lot of noise. But the way Lang uses it in this film, like like you were saying, the opening scene, Joe, where the kids are playing, it really sets the tone because the camera's looking down at them, almost like it's omniscient. It's really creepy. And then it tracks up to that woman's little like house where she's waiting for her daughter to come home. Mm-hmm. And there's certain scenes where they have like the characters looking directly into the camera. Like that was unheard of. And it made me like kind of step back a bit being like, oh, they're looking at me. <laughs> so yeah. it almost makes you complicit in what's going on. And it just, it really sweeps you along with the narrative. Like Therese says, everything is laid out for you because you're going on this journey with them. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's a film very much about paranoia and mob mentality around paranoia. And from what you said, you know, exactly those like close up zooms to someone's face, you know, it does make you complicit in your neck. Well, I'm sort of, you know, you sort of get a bit of feeling of paranoia as well about this whole thing. You're like, you know, where is this fella Beckert? You know, he could be anywhere at any time. He could be, well, you know who he is, but there is that feeling like, you know, it's, it's he's just, out there, it's the, but yeah, he's out you, there. He's, he's the boogeyman. Yeah, yeah, he's the boogeyman character. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I suppose. Um, is there any sort of other points you want to bring to the table in regards to M, Victoria? Uh, just lastly, just bu- bu- building on what Therese was saying about the sound design, like there was actually a few times, because I, w- I watched this film on YouTube, the whole film's on YouTube, mm-hmm. where there was no sound at all. And I actually thought it was my computer a few times until I realised it had been done on purpose. And mm-hmm. then like the use of the whistle, like Therese was saying, it's like a tick for when he wants to murder. And there's a bit where Becker is following a child and gets interrupted but he's still in that, like, I need to kill someone, I need to kill someone. Yeah. So his whistling gets quicker, he gets really tense, and then he goes and has, I think it's a cognac or something, yeah. and he's he whistling two. really, really fast. Yeah, he has two for, like, 165, which would be a dream. Um, but I thought that was a really fascinating way to show his kind of Urge control. And, yes, because, like, with, with Curtin, like, he, like you were saying, he did everything for his own gain, whereas with Beckert, he he's mentally ill like when they do the trial in front of the crime yeah. syndicate he really stresses he can't help this like this is a force this is another part of him he actually says he feels like he's running from himself yeah. and i think looking back on that whistling scene after seeing the crime but you can you can see that he he's telling the truth i think like i yeah. wasn't expecting to feel sorry for peter laurie because i don't feel sorry for peter Curtin at all Oh, but Peter Laurie's got such an expressive, like you were saying, he's got such an expressive face. Like, I know in, in my head, like I'm watching him going, I know you've murdered children, but I do feel sorry for you in a weird yeah. way. And I think a lot of that is Peter Laurie's portrayal of the character. Yeah, that's it. And it sort of goes back to what Fritz Lang was like with actors, which wasn't very good. No. Um, he would, you know, he'd be very cruel to them and... Uh, he'd make them do repeated takes after repeated takes and stuff like that there and he um, the scene where um, Beckert's trying to escape and run upstairs and he's pulled back down off the stairs apparently they shot that loads of times so he like hurt himself a lot doing it 
Uh, so like when he's doing the subsequent scene where he's so exasperated and exhausted, that's probably coming from a real probably place. Genuine. Yeah. yeah, reminds me yeah. of Kubrick with yeah, uh, Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Yeah. yeah, a lot of that too. But uh, I think now is as good a time as any really just to sort of wrap things up. So any other final thoughts there, Trez, just before we close up shop? No, I just think um, if you want to learn more about Peter Carton, um, good luck to you. You are a sick individual. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to know more about AM, um, Fritz Lang's AM and Metropolis, and I suppose um, any of the other sort of films, as we talked about Joker and and those other sort of references, please do. As Victoria said, the whole film is on YouTube. Um, it includes subtitles. It's not even that long. I think it's just an hour and a bit, an hour and a half possibly. Um, and it's one of those films that really shaped cinema. Um, and it's, it's, it's an education and it's, it's something you can enjoy. Um, but yeah, I, I don't want to think, smell, say, talk about Peter Curtin again um, because he has, has ruined my dreams for the past two weeks. So the, the quicker we get this podcast over, the better. Yeah, let's hope our next guest picks a nicer one. Put it that way. <laughs> Um, and if and if they don't, then we're cutting this guest idea because I think all they want to do is just make I, me and we're you just torturing you. Yeah, yeah. sleep this yeah. night or something. But yeah, let's let's push them to the brink. It'd be fun. Um, but yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying. It it's a genuine classic. It's you know, like you said, it shapes cinema and its influences are clear to see. Uh, right up to this day with modern filmmaking in terms of um, you know, crime films in general. Uh, it's like you said, I absolutely 100% agree with you, Trez, and that it's an education, but it's not just an education, it's something that you could genuinely sit and enjoy whilst watching it. You don't feel like you're being sort of told, Oh, this is an important film, and this is yeah. why it's an important film. It's just a fantastic film, regardless. Uh, so I love them, and thanks again, Victoria, for introducing me to it through this podcast. You're very welcome. <laughs> so, any final thoughts yourself just before we uh, end things? No, just like you and Therese were saying, it's an ed- it is an education, but you, you, can, you can just watch it for the sheer enjoyment because it's a brilliant bloody film. You're right. So uh, do you want to close proceedings here, Therese? On another well, lovely yeah. episode. <laughs> um, I just want to um, thank yourself and ultimately thank Victoria for, for joining us. Um, we, we do get a bit lonely on these pods, even though we're, I suppose, we're only seven episodes in. Um, but yeah, I think our next episode is going to be another guest. And then um, after that, we're going to just take um, a wee break and I'll just be me and Joe. Uh-huh. Um, so if you don't like listening to us, you can just stop listening now. I just um, off. Yeah. <laughs> um, I suppose in terms of sign off, um, you can, if you'd like to know more about Banterflex, we have our website at banterflex.com. Um, we're across all social medias, um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, it's all at Banterflix. Um, and we do have other pods on the network as well. Um, I know that there will be some changes in the future. Um, we're possibly looking to branch out some of the pods as standalone. So keep an eye out for that. Um, we have, there's a chance that it'll be um, Victoria's um, pod about her Disney movies. Um, we also have um, a cosplay, I suppose, break off podcast 
um we have a music uh themed podcast which is um sort of coined by by darren vincent and then we also have the main pod which i believe is going to go back to the sort of um more rambly chatty um idea which we did in the early days so there is plenty coming up on the network um if there's any sort of ideas of what people would like to listen to as well um please feel free to I suppose comment on the facebook instagram twitter um any sort of the socials um and i think with things opening again specifically with um MVTV opened um again there is going the tv show will be back at some point in the future so if you're looking forward to that keep an eye on um our socials and on MVTV. but other than that um just want to say um thanks for joining us joe yes and thanks again Trez, for another whirlwind uh journey into the world of true crime yeah and thank you victoria as well thank you so much for having me no problem um and I suppose one of the main points is um, don't go drink on other people's blood. No, or be a pervert. Don't, don't be a pervert. Please don't. Yeah. Either, either you... both of those. I was going to say either one of those, but both of those. Just, just, don't, just don't be yeah. any of that. Yeah. No, no kink shaming, but just maybe not doing public. Yeah. Well, thanks again for joining us <laughs> and we'll speak to you all soon. Bye. Bye.